you know, you have to be careful about making a weird show or watching a weird show. It may come back to haunt you. Enjoy. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. When I say filmmaker, who do you think of? Maybe someone who directs features, or TV shows, or documentaries. Perhaps they're employed by a studio, or work independently. Of course, there's all kinds of other filmmakers. Students, amateurs, People who make art films and short films and cut-ups and video installations. And then there's folks like Herc Harvey. The lens of a motion picture projector is an eye that can help you stimulate, motivate, educate your students. I think the most pertinent thing when I was looking at Harvey was that he was a maker of industrial films films that were largely made for distribution in high schools in particular. I'm Bernice Murphy. I'm an associate professor in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. Films made for the classroom have several purposes. It helps when you're choosing a film to know that there is a connection between the purpose of that film and the techniques used to achieve that purpose. It's only when you dig into the whole concept of an educational film and an educational film company, then you realize that there's auteurs, there's real legitimate filmmakers who really did good ones. I'm Skip Alzheimer, and I'm the founder of the AV Geeks Educational Film Archive in Raleigh, North Carolina. In an over three-decade career, Herc Harvey directed likely hundreds of educational films. But best remembered is his lone feature, 1962's Carnival of Souls. In a nutshell, it falls under that category of supernatural horror films. Carnival of Souls is about a young woman called Mary. Mary Henry. Who is in a drag race at the very start of the film. She's riding in a car with some friends, and these two guys pull up, and they challenge them to a drag race. Hey, you want to drag, huh? Sure. <laughs> but during the race, the women's car falls off the bridge. And it seems like everyone's dead, but then Miri clambers up on the riverbank and she's actually alive. Are you all right? How'd you get out? Yeah, put this on. We better get you back to town. As the film goes on, Miri starts a new job in a new city. She moves to Salt Lake City and becomes a church organist. It seems things are going okay for a while, but then gradually more and more spooky things start to happen. She's kind of being haunted by this ghostly creature that she sees. The ghoul, as portrayed by director Herc Harvey, a mute in white face paint. As she turns, she sees somebody, and then she turns around, it's not there anymore. She rents this room, 
at this boarding house and meets another person who lives at the house. He's trying to make time with her and she's not interested. Oh, I thought you were Mrs. Thomas. Yeah, yeah, I wondered when you asked me in. I, I'm John Linden, I'm your neighbor right across the hall. Oh, nice to meet you, would you excuse me? Hey, yeah, yeah. I just wondering I if just you're not mean, doing it. Stand right there. Oh yeah, the creepy neighbor. Well, good morning. I heard your alarm, I knew you'd be up. He was clearly a sex predator next door. I really appreciate you taking me out this evening. I've had a miserable night if you hadn't. <laughs> Forget it, come on, here, join a party, drink up. At one point she's driving past this pavilion that used to be at this lake and she's told that they shouldn't go in there because it would be illegal. This used to be quite a place. It's been deserted for a long time now. Will you take me in? My goodness, no. It isn't safe out there anymore. She's beginning to get kind of creeped out and is also being very unsocial. Don't you want to join in the things that other people do? Share the experiences of other people? I don't seem capable of being very close to people. She's disconnected from her family, her community, her job. We'll have to have some sort of reception. Couldn't we just skip that? I don't suppose it's an absolute necessity. I don't know what some of the ladies will say. If they say I'm a fine organist, that should be enough, shouldn't it? Well, yes, of course. We'll let it go at that for the time being. But, my dear, you cannot live in isolation from the human race, you know. She goes and is playing for the minister, but then it kind of becomes creepy. Profane, sacrilege, what are you playing in this church? Have you no respect? Do you feel no reverence? She feels like she's kind of losing her mind a little bit, but she's also not engaging with people and just feels like out of touch with everything. The department store, when she's going to buy a dress, suddenly she's muted and no one can hear her or see her. Why can't anybody hear me? But there's this very subtle kind of rippling effect. So you get the sense that something has changed, but you don't quite know why. She talks to the doctor who tries to help her, but kind of dismisses her concerns. Now look, look, you've had a fright. Hysteria won't solve anything. Now control yourself. By the end of the film, Mary has been kind of pursued by a spectral figure, and actually spectral figures. She keeps obsessing about that pavilion. I had to go back there. He's, he's trying to take me back somewhere. And she actually ends up there. Everybody there is ghouls. And there's this kind of dance that takes place at the pavilion. The following day, they go to the pavilion to look for Mary, and they find footprints in the stand that just end. The car's still over there, and then the footprints leading up to here. And then nothing. You have a return at the end of the film to the scene of the crash. Back in Kansas, the police pull the car that she was in from the river and... Spoiler alert. Her body is in the front seat with the two women. It becomes clear 
that actually she has been dead all along. The film itself has been about someone who believes they're still alive, but actually isn't. Well, it's about arguably about many different things. But the story beats alone don't really give a sense of what it's like to watch Carnival of Souls. If you explain the plot, it doesn't do justice to the atmosphere that the film has. It has a real feel of kind of a Twilight Zone episode. What's the matter with everyone? Why don't they answer me? But it's much more impressionistic. So it's like someone saw a bunch of Italian or French cinema and then made this feature-length chiller that has a supernatural element. Trying to prevent me from living. He's trying to take me back somewhere. It's one of those films that if you've seen it and you sat through it, I think it stays with you. It's so intensely focused on Mary and her experience. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. That I think we end up, even if we don't necessarily initially intend to, becoming caught up in her plight and the sense that something is terribly wrong. Will you help me? I need your help. But we don't quite know what. There's that sense that things are somewhat askew in reality. I don't belong in the world. That's what it is. Something separates me from other people. At first, it might perhaps seem a little bit hokey. Can I help you? Fill it up. All right. Independent filmmaker, little budget, not really a lot of professional actors. I didn't mean any harm. I just stopped to get a drink. But the acting has a very raw kind of quality to it at times. I, I don't know what real anymore. Some of the set pieces in the film are absolutely superb. The extended highway driving scene at night, which is brilliantly staged. It is so unique in terms of its cinematography and there's a visual and kind of editorial sophistication there that maybe you might necessarily be expecting from a film with that budget level. There's also an off-kilter quality about the film that maybe is in part because of its low-budget nature, as is often the way in low-budget horror filmmaking when it's done well, actually adds to the unease that it generates. When does the next bus leave? I must get on. It's not slick. It's not the usual kind of narrative grammar that maybe a more conventional film would have. But there's a sense that anything can happen. I came to you, Doctor, because you're my, my last hope. It has more in common in some ways with an art house film and the ways in which often they will upend our sort of visual or narrative expectations. It's not your typical... I don't want to slag off the horror genre, but I think it's unique and it remains unique. It has, I think, a genuine eeriness that really holds up even today. I think it has a real claim to be one of the most important American horror films, actually, of the 1960s. I think it's been tremendously influential, but in ways that aren't always fully appreciated. But there's no getting away from the fact that it is a film about the human cost of dangerous driving. It's one of those films that dramatizes the impact of road fatalities and the idea that travel by car and the highways actually have a very negative downside. Sir, as high as this river is right now and with all the mud and sand it's carrying, they may never find that car. 
I first studied the film about six or seven years ago. I was working on a book called The Highway Horror Film, which is about the cultural ramifications of the interstate highway system, the effect that the creation of this vast network of highways had upon the horror film in particular. By 1951, something like one million Americans had already died in car accidents. Today's heavy traffic and high-speed cars make the odds heavy against the non-drinking driver. You had an immense road-building operation that was underway. Our highways are engineered for safety and convenience. It's sort of the dawn of American teenagers. Hey, Keith, how would you and Mary like to go out to the lake tomorrow? What time? Early? Take a steak. Make a day of it. Think it over. Wealthier ones in the 1930s and 40s would have had cars, but you had kind of a more widespread introduction of mass automobility generally, but particularly amongst the younger age group. It became apparent with the statistics that they were disproportionately affecting young people in particular. A 17-year-old boy driving a red convertible comes over a hill crest and rams into a red hardtop that came out of a side road. Here is the young man critically injured, and this is his car. So you had, in the 1950s, a raft of films that were essentially targeted towards a teenage audience, and there were cautionary films. Signal 30, the code that has a morbid meaning for the men of the Ohio State Highway Patrol. A good driver's safety film, a good drug film, a good alcohol film, a good VD film is scaring you. The lad may have been fast on the gridiron, but speed on the highway is at best a losing and deadly game. There's a setup of the person who you were made to identify with. A young man speeds home after enjoying a rollicking stag party. It goes through something tragic, and then this is why it was tragic because of drugs, because of drinking, because they didn't drive safely. One, the damage to the car was slight. A repair bill of 75 to $100 would have covered it easily. Second, the man and his wife were planning a party for the next day, a party observing his young son's birthday. And then there's a reconciliation. If we educate ourselves to our dangers and our responsibilities, we can expect accident-free highways. We can obey the law. We can use courtesy and consideration. Let's all of us regard the automobile as a useful servant and priceless necessity, not as a weapon to maim and kill. I think you can see why the genre would have internalized, particularly since essentially several generations of American teenagers were forced to watch this kind of material. Had the speeding truck driver observed the 45 mile per hour speed limit, there would have been a plus safety factor. I came to Carnival of Souls because it quickly became clear to me that it was really a foundational text in the highway horror film. All right, now let's hear your story about how it happened. It wasn't our fault, sir. Yeah? We were the first ones on the bridge, and coming along, following the tracks, and they wanted to get around us, I guess, and they lost control when they dropped off. You sure you didn't crowd them off? Herc Harvey was obviously someone who, in a previous filmmaking capacity, had made films about the dangers of reckless driving and young people misbehaving in cars. Nobody can afford to drive with alcohol present in the body. It makes complete sense to me that it would have filtered into popular culture in later years. Carnival of Souls literally begins with 
young people in a drag race that they shouldn't be in and then a terrible accident unfolds. And that's a really, really typical feature of the highway safety films of the 1960s in particular. I don't know that it's explicitly saying, you know, kids drive carefully, which obviously the highway safety films were very explicitly saying that. All of these resulted from violations of simple traffic regulations. It's up to you and your own driving habits. But there is a kind of a verite style to Carnival of Souls. I don't know about that girl. It has an unusual sense of maybe realism for a low-budget horror film of that era. Day before yesterday, she was the only one of three girls to survive an accident. I think she'd feel a little something like humbleness or gratitude. I think you could argue that some of that sense of maybe reality and mundanity has come perhaps from the industrial films. What can we do? And what can you do to prevent juvenile delinquency? You tell us. The demand for classroom films inspired childhood friends Arthur Wolfe and Russell Mosser to found the Centron Corporation in 1947. What's interesting about them is that they were based in Lawrence, Kansas. Centron Films, a firm in Lawrence. Kansas. Have you ever been there? No, Aunt Emily always visited the family here. That's where University of Kansas is. They were pulling a lot of their talent from University of Kansas. That's where Herc Harvey came from. I got started making films. Uh, I was here at the university in the theatrical department, in the theater department up here. Uh, as an instructor at that time. And uh, I would come down to Centron once in a while as an actor. And finally they asked me if I would like to direct for them. And I said, sure, it would be kind of fun to try. So I came down full time as a director at that time. And that was 12, 13 years before we did Carnival. After a tour in the Navy during World War II and a decision not to pursue a career in chemical engineering, Herc Harvey enrolled in the University of Kansas to study theater. While acting and directing school productions, Herc earned bachelor's and master's degrees from KU. And, with a doctorate from the University of Colorado, came back to Kansas to teach acting and filmmaking. In 1952, while continuing to teach, Harvey started working for the Centron Corporation. Rolling sound, quiet directing company productions for over three decades. I started out as a director and uh, remained a director for 35 years at Centron. Uh, the interesting thing about it was that with each project, of course, the nature of the job changed because we were making educationals, industrials. That included uh, a variety of subjects. And also in some of the industrials, we got into musicals and uh, extensive travel and this sort of thing. So. The job itself was very interesting in that it was always different. But across the board of industrial and educational films, casting crew info can be difficult, sometimes impossible to track down, because credits were rarely ever included. So you don't know who directed it, you don't know who lit it, you don't know who photographed it, you don't know any of the actors' names. Accounts vary 
as to how many and which films Herc made for Centron. But it's well documented that he worked there from 1952 until 1985. Here are some of the classics that we believe to bear his stamp. But, well, couldn't you manage to arrange your time so you could have a little fun, too? I have a certain amount of homework to do, and I like to get it done on time. But you have the whole weekend. Cheating, the snob, those are ones that are open-ended with a student talking at the beginning and then telling the story about what's going to happen. Did you hear about John Taylor? They voted him out as student council representative because he was caught cheating. Who? John Taylor voted out John student Taylor council representative. Who was cheating? John Taylor. John Taylor. John Taylor. John Taylor. John Taylor. And then you have to decide at the end, like what you're going to do. Is the group justified in judging everything Sarah does as snobbery? What do you think? Why study industrial arts is part of a series. There's why study Latin, why study science, why study home economics. Here's an elective that you have in high school that you could take, and this is why you should take it. And Joe, we'll need scores of men who can translate and build those ideas on paper into the actual homes, churches, schools, and factories of the future. Some of you may be statesmen who must understand the impact and implications of science on society. Manners in school, this boy is acting up in class and is not allowed to take recess and so he has to clean the chalkboards. Larry, I just wanted to remind you, it's your board. Oh, Miss Rand, we are gonna play ball at recess. Honest, you better get somebody else. Some girl. And Chalky. Hi, Larry. My name is Chalky. I think he's a devil who's actually uh, chalk drawing. (laughs) I think I can trust you, Larry. After all, (laughs) I'm just trying to be your friend. Basically, takes the boy to task on his behavior. I'm here for a purpose. To do something about your manners. What do you mean, my man? I'm worried about you, Larry. Hey, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to wipe you out. That's what... My heavens, you are a bad-mannered young man, aren't you? And teaches him a lesson. I'm ready to go, Larry. Oh, gee. No, Chalky. I can't do that. I need you to help me with my manners. No, Larry. You don't need me anymore. You can learn good manners yourself by watching the good manners of others. And he eventually learns from it. Larry, you've done an excellent job on the chalkboard. Thank you, Miss Rand. What about Prejudice is pretty good because it is high school students. I don't know about you, but I think this is the best party we've ever had. No and there is one student who you never see. This is the story of Bruce Jones, who walked in a shadow of hate and suspicion. Who is being prejudiced against. You see the reconciliation, you see how they process that, and it's pretty great. The thing is, it wasn't Bruce at all. I was the one neatly fitting people into categories because of where they go to church or what their fathers do or what the color of their skin is. The Innocent Party is one of several venereal disease films that Centron did. Those little corkscrew things are the germs of syphilis. These films talk about young adults and kids are having sex and 
they're getting venereal disease and they're not talking about it and it's a problem. I'm not here to make a moral judgment, but you and I know that it was contracted through sexual intercourse with an infected person. That's 1960. That beats that old Summer of Love thing that was much later. Choosing a classroom film is kind of an ad. Proper use of film heightens the importance of the teacher and makes his contribution all the more necessary. This is how you use an educational film. Such films provide common experiences through which your students can more easily gain a new appreciation of themselves and the factors which shape their lives. The narrator here, seen on camera, is Herc Harvey himself. Let's take a look at some screen examples. They would probably give that away to a school system and say, but here, here's a film about choosing classroom films and here's a catalog and you get to go through and pick what fits and why you would pick a film for a given class. You will develop your own skill in evaluating films by learning to recognize some of the film techniques we have demonstrated here. Now, each of these serve an essential purpose, but remember too that any one of them may serve a secondary purpose, which may be very important in relation to your teaching goals. In an educational film, you have 11 minutes to tell what you need to tell. And so how do you relay that information? How do you break down the shots? You have to be very efficient and you have to be very deliberate. I feel like that deliberateness and that efficiency helped Carnival of Souls. 35 millimeter was very expensive. And the fact that they had shot so many educational films with a, kind of a similar criteria of like, we gotta knock it out in a thoughtful way, in a smart way. I don't think shots were wasted in that film. The idea of doing a 35 millimeter feature film for $13,000 cash is a little staggering even then. But uh, we did get the money and decided, yes, we can do it, and started shooting the film. In order to make Carnival, Harvey relied heavily on his Centron Rolodex. Carnival of Souls writer John Clifford was also on staff with Centron. The nice thing about working with Herc is that uh, over the years, if you come up with something difficult, he always says, well, you write the way you think it ought to be, and I'll get it shot. Or try to. So, you know, a, a writers appreciate that. He lets me do the writing, and I stay out of his directing. There's a lot of actors in there that show up in Centron films and a lot of locations that show up in Centron films as well. So it's like, oh, I know that guy. I've seen that guy grow up. Like he was in this Why Study Science film and now he's a hot rodder. Larry Sneegas, the kid who began the drag race, which started the film. Hey, Joe, drag your foot, boy. Look what we got here. Hey, you want to drag, huh? Sneegas was also the movie's production manager. So he borrowed pretty heavily from there, and he also borrowed pretty heavily from University of Kansas's dramatic school. Come on, what do you think, I'm an alcoholic? Look, I just like to start the day off in a good mood, that's all. You must be hilarious by noon. Lifelong theater teacher Sidney Berger, who played the creepy neighbor John Linden, was another KU alum. Well, I had, I had a wonderful time. I was a graduate student here at KU when, I, when we were making Carnival of Souls, and the story about how I got into it is kind of interesting. One gentleman in the audience, Larry, Larry Sneakers, probably hates my class because I took the part away from him. He had all those resources available and just tapped all that because he knew all those people. 
Herc Harvey had access to studios and filming and development and sound because he taught filmmaking at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. This is Candace Hillegoss, who played Mary, the lead role in Carnival of Souls. Thank you for the coffee. It was unsanitary, but delicious. He thought that by making Carnival, if Carnival were successful, he could turn that into a major studio that would make more and higher budgeted movies. Carnival was a notoriously scrappy production. I've seen the budget estimated around $30,000. But in interviews, Harvey said it was less. For the starring part, Hillegas reportedly netted $2,500. I was really the only paid person. And that was a great payment. Reza Badi, who was one of our cinematographers, said he got $75. It was shot in 28 days. And sometimes we went around the clock. We went 24 hours. So it was very hard. I had no idea that in a low budget, there's no double. You do all the stunts. So if they want you to fall off a bridge, you have to do it. They want you to crash a car, you have to crash it. He didn't tell me that when we raced across the bridge in a car, that underneath was a big gas line. And he's wondering if the two cars going across together, he was very worried that that gas line could come apart and explode. So there were a number of moments like that that I had no idea. As a friend said, well, I counted out about five places that you could have been killed. One of the stunts Candace had to perform was emerging from the lake after her car had fallen off the bridge. When we came back to film that, Indian summer had gone and winter had come. I said, I don't think I can go in the water. They're standing there, they're wearing mittens and hats, and they're asking me to go into that water again. I said, I don't know if I can do it. I stood in the water and her Harvey was standing with me in bathing suits and a sweater. He said, if you don't do it, we don't have an ending. And I said, I can't do it. So he pushed me and I started to scream. I screamed so loudly that a highway patrolman out on the highway heard my screams and came roaring through the woods looking to see what was happening when he saw them Herc Harvey picked me up and threw me in the water. He jumped out of his car and he ran out with his gun and he says, what's going on here? What are you doing with that girl? And they tried to tell him it was just a movie and he says, well, I'm not leaving. I'm watching. Do you remember the day you got in the car? You mean the day you forced me in? <laughs> right. And held me in? There was a policeman there and he had to leave or arrest me, so I guess he thought it was diplomatic to leave and I think Candace could have killed him and me both <laughs> because it was cold. The film was primarily shot on and in fact designed around location. Most importantly, the abandoned Saltaire Pavilion on Utah's Great Salt Lake, which may have inspired the whole film as it is the story's literal carnival of souls. It all started here at the Kansas River and in the active imagination of Mr. Harvey. As I told you, I went on vacation and uh, coming back from Los Angeles, 
I saw this place, uh, Salt Air, which is located just outside of Salt Lake. It's very Russian uh, Arabesque in architecture. And I saw it at sunset, and it was the weirdest looking thing I'd ever seen. So I stopped the car and walked about a half mile to take a look at it. Noticed it was deserted. Uh, quite a ways now from the lake because Salt Lake had gone down. And so the amusement park is sitting away from the lake. So I came back and talked to John, showed him a couple of the pictures that I took when I was there and said, you know, it's a great location. We ought to figure out something to do with that. So John, in his usual way of being inventive, comes up with Carnival of Souls. It was some sort of lakeside attraction where the lake had basically evaporated. And so it was just kind of there in the middle of nowhere. Right off the bat, you see it, and you're like, what the hell is that? Why is it in the middle of what looks like a desert? What's going on? I mean, that was some amazing scouting. Very thoughtful use of location. Being out there alone in that pavilion, which is big enough to hold 3,000, the crew started to get scared. They actually felt very spooked by the whole place. And so they said, when everyone goes to the cars, we go together. It burned down seven years after we had been there. And this is the only footage they've ever had on it. Location also informed a character choice for me and the theme of the carnival score. So much pipe organ. Well, for a start, I can't think of another horror film I know where the heroine is an organist. And it's not just on the soundtrack, it's actually a really interesting part of the film itself. Well, I play, but they did that because they realized they had an organ factory. And they said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could use the organ factory? So let's make her an organist. You've got the amazingly atmospheric score, which right from the start, you get the close-up of the titles on the murky water of the river where the car is with the dead bodies, and you get the <laughs> Probably as horror viewers we have, but subconscious association of 1930s horror films or, you know, Phantom of the Opera on the organ. But actually, it makes sense in the film as well, where Mary's job is to play church music, and yet one of the interesting themes in the film is that she's clearly not religious, and what does she say? That it's just for the paycheck, it's all about the money for her. Well, Mary, you'll make a fine organist for that church. Be very satisfying to you, I think. It's just a job to me. Well, it's not quite the attitude for going into church work. I'm not taking the vows. I'm only going to play the organ. And people keep telling her, you need to play like you've got a soul. <laughs> Mary, it takes more than intellect to be a musician. Put your soul into it a little. Not very subtle. And I feel sorry for you and your lack of soul. In 1962, after a speedy and thrifty production, Herc Harvey was ready to find distribution for his debut feature. Back in the day, if you had a good distributor, they would play your film for years. You'd make a print of it or a couple of prints of it, and then they would make their way slowly around the country. Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. 
there were something like 18,000 drive-in movie theaters in the United States at that time. And they thought if they could take this movie as an independent and sell it as a double bill to movie drive-in theaters, they would have 18,000 theaters buying their movie. So they showed it to a couple of drive-in people, and they looked at it, and they said, well, you know, it kind of looks artsy for us. And they said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, shouldn't you have her beat up a little? And, you know, she's in a car accident. Shouldn't she come out of the water with no clothes on? I mean, if you're going to make it a double bill with Lon Chaney Jr.'s The Devil's Messenger, it's too artistic looking for a double bill. And I don't think they realized that at the time. He was trying to market Carnival of Souls. Somebody was like, well, have you made other films? And he's like, well, yeah, like a thousand other films. <laughs> All these educational films. Now, about those manners. I'm afraid you've got to improve them. Yeah? Who says so? I do. And practically everyone else. That were never shown in a theater, but they certainly got more eyeballs than a lot of films that got shown in theaters. Finally, he found this very small distributor called Hertz Lion. He said, well, I'll take on your movie. Hertz says, well, you can have it for theaters, but you cannot have it for television. It got kind of a, a slightly botched release. It didn't have a very wide distribution in the first place. And then Herc says he went down and he was filming a documentary. And by the time he came home, the first check from Hertz Lion had bounced. I went to South America on another film. And when I came back, it was obvious that they owed us considerable money but hadn't paid us a cent. And then he heard from a friend, it's 1 o'clock a.m. in Florida, and I'm watching Carnival of Souls on television. Well, then Herc found out that Herc Lion had sold the movie to a hundred TV stations. And he became a fugitive and disappeared to some foreign country so no one could find him. When I started investigating, I got no replies. And the next thing I knew, the president of the company had gone to Europe and the funds were gone with him. Then it was impossible to trace it all down. Herc Harvey didn't subsequently do any feature-length films after that. He said he'd never do another one. He had done over 70 documentaries and commercials. So he went back to filming them, but he said he couldn't go through it, what he went through at the time. I know he went back to making educational films. Centron was making films up until mid-80s, so he was a successful educational filmmaker after the fact, and that's kind of what he did to pay the bills. Arguably, Herc's most famous corporate film came in 1980's Shake Hands with Danger. Here, shake hands with danger. Shake hands with danger. Need a guy who ought to know. I used to laugh at safety. Now they call me Three Finger Joe. Centron made a couple of films for Caterpillar Heavy Equipment, Shake Hands with Danger and Signals where you're going to be I met the guy who wrote the music for Shake Hands with Danger, Jim Stringer, 
And we talked a lot about how this film was made and how popular it was. Shake hands with danger. Take a chance that you won't fall. You'll save yourself a minute, but you may damn well lose it all. I'd like to claim credit for making it popular again to a whole new generation of people because it is wonderful. It is like an example of a film that is still being referenced today and it is still being shown today. Harvey's last directing work on record is one segment of an episode in the first season of Reading Rainbow. And I might even take time out for my favorite rainy day sport, puddle hopping. Perk himself plays the policeman who can't resist the allure of hopping in a puddle. No school today, mom's working and my daddy is going shopping. What a day, don't get the blues. Put on your coat and your rainy day shoes and go. The botched release of Carnival of Souls in 1962 could have been the end of the story. Herc Harvey might have joined the ranks of countless other forgotten filmmakers. Just another ghost at the party. But it turns out that Carnival, like its main character, got the chance to live a second life. You say, what is a cult classic? That kind of concept really hit in the 80s. I mean, there were cult movies prior to that that were kind of midnight movies that showed in some theaters at night. John Waters was definitely part of that Rocky Horror Picture Show. How'd you do, Razorhead. Those were all popular things where people would get stoned and go see a movie at midnight. Do I just... Uh... Just cut them up like regular chickens? Sure, just cut them up like regular chickens. Carnival of Souls maybe had that. Some programmer was like, ooh, this film is awesome, and programmed it. But it didn't take off really until it was available on VHS. After the distribution debacle, the copyright lapsed on Carnival of Souls, bringing the film into the public domain. Ironically, that's why people started watching it again. When the VHS stores and the VHS market appeared, it was a frenzy of content. People trying to find content to put on VHS tapes to sell. The fact that this had a public domain status meant that there were lots of companies that were finding a print, transferring it, and then releasing it for sale on VHS. So in dollar bins, you would have Carnival of Souls. I think that's what made it cult status, is the fact that you could see it everywhere. It was kind of like, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life, not a cloud in the sky. When It's a Wonderful Life came out, it wasn't really well received. People didn't like it. The story was a little too weird. Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! And it fell into public domain because they just didn't renew it. The studio was like, eh. But TV stations started showing it because it was free to show it and it was Christmas related. And it had like actors that people liked. Look, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. Yeah, yeah, I know, you told me that. So it got super popular and so popular that Republic Pictures 
like retroactively figured out a way to pull it out of public domain. But the nature of it being in public domain is what made it popular. If they had renewed the copyright, it wouldn't have been as popular, definitely. I want to get out of here. I want to get away from here. I think that that's what happened here is that you had lots of people that could see it easily all over the United States. Eastbound bus. Now loading. Gate nine. You watch it at home and it has a good slow burn to it. Or it was shown on your chiller theater back in the day because it was inexpensive for them to show it. Anyway, I know your problem. You just saw Carnival of Souls. How would you describe it? It was unsanitary, but delicious. That's how you kind of seed a cult film is you just show it all the time everywhere. I gather in an American context, it was shown quite regularly late at night in the wee hours of the morning. And so it was probably caught by a lot of people who didn't quite know what they were watching. They're everywhere. Not going to let me go. I think that he did get to see the resurgence of the film as a cult status, which is great. It wasn't just he did it and then it languished and died. People were actively still seeing it and were beginning to make phone calls about, you're Hurt Harvey, you were in that film. When this was first shown, it was shown primarily in drive-ins as part of a double bill with The Devil's Messenger. And now, in its re-release, it's being shown in the art houses, which is where we would like to have had it the first time around. And as far as we're concerned, that's great. Makes all the difference. It became an underground swell and started being picked up from colleges. And it started to grow and to grow and to grow. And then Herc said, a teacher said, I was just in Sweden. And she said, I'm bringing you your reviews for Carnival Souls in Sweden. And then he learned it was in Germany. It was in England. It went to Italy. He got invited to the Munich Film Festival. When he got to the theater, it was sold out. And he said... Afterwards, they kept him on the stage till two o'clock in the morning asking him questions. It's nice too, though, isn't it, when the underdogs finally start to get a bit of recognition. I think there's a nice kind of afterlife for this film that, that will probably only continue to get stronger, which is very well deserved. In 1998, the name Carnival of Souls was licensed from writer John Clifford for a film that appeared to have nothing to do with the original. They took the name of the film and they made a slasher film out of it. Wes Craven presents Showtime. Carnival of Souls. It never got sold to a theater. It went just to DVDs and no one ever really saw it. Apparently it was a load of sh- Candace Hillegoss had also been developing her own sequel. I spent two years building interest in it, and we had an option, and then our option ended, and we went back to re-sign it with Herc Harvey again, and Herc Harvey was dying of cancer. Herc Harvey passed away in 1996. Despite the fact that he only helmed one feature film, the legacy of his cinematic style has lived on. All kinds of productions have been accused of taking influence from Carnival of Souls. 
when Carnival sort of got lost in the beginning, it became a hit when it was revived 20 years later, and then everyone said, Carnival started it all. Carnival of Souls really has spawned a long tradition of American late 20th century horror films. Our movie was copied many times. In fact, the most famous one was Michael Jackson's Thriller, who was inspired from the ghouls that were dancing in the Salt Air Pavilion. I'm not like other guys. Of course not. That's why I love you. No, I mean I'm different. Given David Lynch, I'd be surprised if he hadn't seen it, given that he's obviously a cinephile and would know, I think, his antecedents well. Even people thought Blue Velvet and Carrie. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Had some elements of carnival in it. Then, of course, Beetlejuice copied us. Beetlejuice. It's showtime. Night of the Living Dead. In the beginning, George Romero talked about how he had seen Carnival and it had inspired him. What's happening? What's happening? Night of the Living Dead was also maybe a little bit overlooked at the time, but did quite rapidly gain a cult reputation and then a mainstream reputation because George Romero obviously went on to even bigger and better things. Don't worry about him, I can handle him. Probably be a lot more of them as soon as they find out about us. Whereas that didn't quite happen, unfortunately, for her Carby. Carnival 2 is an early example of a now popular movie trope. The twist ending in which the prospective character was dead all along, living out a ghost walk upon the earth. Carnival of Souls really has spawned a long tradition of American late 20th century horror films about people who have died in car accidents but don't actually know it till the end of the film. So that's where I, I kind of came across it. Try to take me back somewhere. Doctor, you've got to tell me what to do. You obviously have the precedent of classic 19th century American literature with Ambrose Bierce and Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is maybe the pioneering literary text of that type. Premise of that really quick. Civil War, someone who's being hung for either being a traitor or was a prisoner or something like that, is being hung like on this bridge. And it seems like the protagonist has escaped death by hanging. The rope breaks as he's being hung and he lands in the river and basically swims away. He's being shot at and all that stuff, but eventually escapes. He goes through all these adventures and makes his way back to his girlfriend, his sweetheart, who is on a plantation and is running to her and he runs to embrace her and kiss her and then... Spoiler alert. He's hung. The whole story is actually a hallucination he's had in the moments before death. And so what it is, is it's everything that happened as he was descending, being hung. So it's like his life suddenly fleshed out this whole thing and then he died. Carnival of Souls has that same type of feel to occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. The commonality of 
they're dead and their brain is kind of going down this crazy, you know, it's like a dream. It felt like I was in there for days and it was only like 30 seconds. Is she going to hell or is she being escorted to death? It kind of plays with a lot of things. It doesn't spell anything out, which I think is kind of great. And there is that payoff that an educational film has, which is, you know, pulling a dead body out of a car. So don't drag race because you'll be haunted in the mere seconds before you die. For a guy who devoted his professional life to the education of others through the art and grammar of filmmaking and gave us so many gems that may have needed the passage of time to fully appreciate, Herc Harvey seems to have remained pretty humble about his one crossover success. Well, all I've, all I've, I've said about Carnival of Souls is it's a heck of a note uh, when a film that has failed financially is your total breadth of success in the feature film market. of Ephemeral was written and produced by Max Williams, Trevor Young, and Alex Williams, with special thanks to Brett Wood and to Terry and Tiffany Defoe from Cult Radio Agogo for allowing us to excerpt their interview with Candace Hillicom on Crag Live. Hear the full broadcast and much more at craggradio.com. Bernice Murphy is the author of the book The Highway Horror Film and the upcoming The California Gothic in Fiction and Film. Follow her on Twitter, at Murph Gothic. And Skip Elsheimer is the eyes and ears behind the AV Geek's ephemeral film library. Watch her Carby's Centron shorts and other 16mm masterpieces over at avgeeks.com. Links and videos on our website, ephemeral.show.